bum bum bottom 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 bum
you know, find the lady equivalents of Foggy Nelson to fan cast you. But like, here's the thing, like, you know, when I worked in retail, I got compared to all kinds of actors, right? Like I have vivid memories and they're always like, you look like Dwight Schrute from The Office. You look like Seth Rogen from Knocked Up. You look like Dan Aykroyd when he wasn't living well. <laughs> well, look at all of the feelings you're hurting. Now we've just lost Seth Rogen as a listener. We just lost Dan Aykroyd as a listener. Oh, Why are you just throwing barbs? Because I'm hurt. I'm hurt and I'm taking out my anger on the beautiful men that are... Uh, Dan Aykroyd, Seth Rogen, and Rain Wilson. I love all three of those guys. I think that the hurt is coming from us as a culture having too narrow a definition <laughs> of what is considered sexy. Yeah, yeah. I find Foggy Nelson sexy. No, like, and like, I find Seth Rogen sexy, yeah, which is very personal. Yeah, so do I. So do I. But like, okay, all right. I mean, honestly, like, take looks off the table. It's not even about the looks. It's... Is it not? No, I mean, it's a okay. It's a little bit about the looks. It's a little bit about the looks and my own insecurities. But it's also your Captain Carter, your Betsy Braddock. You're like these super powered individuals. And Brad, you're the sidekick with no abilities. But uh, Foggy has abilities. He Foggy has, has abilities. abilities. I know, he, I, know. I, I love the members of superhero teams that do not have super-powered av yeah, abilities. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, that yeah, Foggy yeah. Nelson brings a lot to the table, and that's why Murdoch keeps him so close. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. I'm just saying, like, could I be gold balls? <laughs> <laughs> How about we do a thread of where we just fan... Oh, well, we've already done this, where we fan cast ourselves as the superheroes we'd like to yeah, be, uh, and then just have Karen Charm draw it, yeah. and it feels great. <laughs> it does feel... Well, it does feel great, but, like, when Karen Charm did do that first Silver Surfer poster of us, like, I love, 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 the long shot one. Mm -hmm. I think we both look stunning, and... Uh, beautiful. I think we look stunning at all the Karen, uh, all of Karen's works. But this, when the Silver Surfer one dropped, and they gave me my own gut, and not Norrin Rad's gut, <laughs> I had to like, I had to come to terms with that. Like, even my cartoon self just looks like me. <laughs> you and I don't Thank it you. hurts my feelings to hear uh, you disparage uh, you because you're my favorite person on the whole planet uh, you know podcasting doing anything creative putting yourself out there on Twitter and Instagram it's a vulnerable thing we've it talked is. about this in the past uh, I it, it honestly helps me like when, when people were like oh Foggy Nelson I, I laughed like the first yeah. Foggy Nelson we got I laughed <laughs> the second Foggy Nelson I was like all right is this guy masquerading as another Twitter follower? And then when we got the third one, I was like, damn. Uh, well, Damn, that's I, accurate. I want to personally thank everybody who participated yes. in that thread. Yes. Because that means that you're following us yeah. and you're thinking about us and I that feels great. I love our followers. You know, last night we uh, we just clocked past 12,000 followers on Twitter. I am in awe of that. And I have so much fun on that weird little bird app. Like, 
I, I, I go to it daily. Obviously, if you're following me, you know that we go to it daily. Lisa and I are uploading it constantly. And I get so much satisfaction out of it, which is difficult to do and requires a lot of work because you do have to tend that garden, mute the words that trigger you, uh, mute the topics that trigger you. But if you curate your Twitter feed, like it can be a wonderful room full of enthusiasts and passionate comic supporters. And I love it so much. And I love all of you out there listening to this podcast. And if you think I look like Foggy Nelson, I'm proud to look like Foggy Nelson. And I feel like if I feel like the comic book community is so beautiful and yes. so wonderful. And if we can have this number of followers and the worst insult we've gotten so far is Brad looks a little bit like a very successful <laughs> lawyer. Like, I mean, God uh, bless. Lisa, it's not the worst insult we've gotten so far. <laughs> what? But I don't talk about those. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, uh, if we have gotten anything worse than that, it's not from a follower. Like, our, our followers are beautiful people. And again, uh, I'm, I'm only mildly joking about uh, feeling uncomfortable being uh, referred to as a Foggy Nelson. You've mostly been just laughing about it. I have, I have, I have, I have. Uh, so yeah, I think I think we should move on. Um, but if you think I look like I don't know, like Chris Evans or something, <laughs> hey, just throw it out just, there. You know, throw me a Chris Evans every now and again. Okay, that's all I'm asking for. All right, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It's saga time. We're on our third episode of this particular series on Marco and Alana. I think it's actually our seventh. Yeah, it's our seventh episode on Saga as a whole. We are nearing the end, Lisa. Can you believe it? How do you feel? I feel very many layers of emotion. I am an onion. Like, <laughs> I am loving Saga so much. I never want this journey to end. Um, I also am sad at, at what is happening in the comic. Their life is so hard. And um, also, I'm kind of feeling relieved that eventually the knowledge gap yeah. of what Brad knows about what's happening in Saga and what I know about uh, is happening in Saga closes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I'm, I'm tired of being the bearer of all the secrets, Lisa, <laughs> in this household. It's a lot of pressure. Like, you know, again, you know, I know I'm the one responsible for spoiling the big spoiler at the end of volume nine, but I've also like, I've withheld a lot of tiny spoilers. I think I've done an okay job in that yeah, regard. Yeah, I give you a B minus. Yeah, I do regret me. having spoiled the big thing. But, but I maybe, also, yeah. I also understand Sam, because I mean, it created a lot of emotion for you. Yeah, it was, it was traumatic. You needed some support yeah. in that time. Yeah. I am one of the, your resources for yeah. finding that emotional support, and and I'm happy I could be there for you. Yeah, and reading this volume, volume eight, and going into volume nine, like the anxiety of the big event in volume nine, like this 
This particular section of the podcast we've recorded on Marco and Alana has been like the most dread filled Mm. because that ending is coming and you really feel that ending coming on the reread. It's it's been unlike any other like comic book podcast experience that we've done together. So yeah, I'm excited to record next week's episode. I'm excited that we're recording this week's episode. You know, as we were getting ready to cover this volume, I did my usual thing. I went to the internet searching for relevant Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples interviews. I found a short one over at Comic Book Resources done back in May of 2017, right before issue 43 dropped at the start of volume eight. And uh, I just found the title of this interview, Lisa, so dang funny in that like utterly painful saga kind of way. It's called, quote, Brian K. Vaughn brings Saga out west for a fun-filled arc called (laughs) The Coffin, end quote, Lisa. And that fun-filled is in quotes as well. Yes. So apparently somewhere Brian K. Vaughn promised that this arc would be fun-filled. Yes, yes, yes. How do you respond to The Coffin, especially knowing what The Coffin is, as a fun-filled arc? I wish that I knew the original quote because I'm sure that... Uh, Brian K. Vaughn perhaps was being sarcastic. I mean, it's a fairly slight interview and there's some fun tidbits in it. Uh, You know, you dear listener can check it out for yourself by clicking the link in the show notes. It starts off mostly talking about Vaughn's obsession with Star Wars and how that movie fuels nearly every fantasy science fiction story after 1977. Hard to argue with that. There is this bit where he talks about being super excited for The Last Jedi. And just the thought of Star Wars fandom pre-Last Jedi makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, (laughs) Lisa. But I guess that's not that much different than thinking about the negative reaction to The Phantom Menace when it came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just so dang exhausted by the performative disgust over both of those movies, especially since The Last Jedi is, yes, a dang masterpiece. Right, Lisa? I do love that movie. But I digress. Uh, then there's this, t- you know, th- this little bit about like the possibility of Saga being a movie or a series. Uh, Vaughn says he's open to it, but they want to get to the comic uh, and they they want to they want to wrap up the comic mm-hmm. before they even consider doing an animated movie or film. You know, like we, you know, I, I'm I love the comic book so much. I can't possibly imagine a translation that looks as good as Fiona Staples' art. I don't know. I hate to try to judge something that doesn't even exist yet. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's the healthy thing. (laughs) But to me, my favorite comic book adaptations are not trying to recreate a comic book cinematically, but takes the materials and creates something that is aesthetically different and new. And maybe even narratively different, yeah. right? Like, I, you know, I have the comic. I don't want you to try to do the comic. Like, I know? think about Scott Pilgrim. I love that movie so much. It's pretty close to the comic book. But 
But visually, it's not. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess in the uh, cinematic translations, they're doing a very cinematic thing to capture the references, the comic book paneling, the video game effects. And none of the Marvel movies that we hold near and dear to our hearts are based directly on any comics, specifically. There are comic book movies that I really enjoyed at the time, like Sin City or 300 Mm -hmm. or Watchmen, which are very much about trying to uh, mirror the comic book. But like my my enjoyment of that particular type of translation has dwindled greatly. And when I go back and revisit those adaptations, I don't enjoy them as much as the ones that kind of go way off, uh, you know, on their own tangent. And those movies were also not animated movies. Sure, sure. Well, do you imagine uh, a saga movie in live action or in animation? Well, I only say that because you say, like, there's there's no, like, visual equivalent to Fiona Staples' art. Right. And to me, I go, like, we're not looking for an equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking for a different. We're looking for a special. We're looking for a reinterpretation. Which is why I think I don't really love the Invincible cartoon on Amazon because it's trying so much to be Ryan Otley and Corey Walker. Um, But a lot of people do love it, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All I'm saying is, Lisa... I just like the comic book and I don't need anything else. <laughs> and that's completely valid. And, I, <laughs> and to me, I go like, my heart's open. But I want to get back to this idea of volume eight being a fun arc <laughs> or more accurately, Vaughn thinking you need to have a little fun after killing off Curdy and his family in volume seven. The interviewer, Jeffrey Renaud, asks Vaughn if Curdy's clan is actually dead. And Vaughn responds, yeah, there are no resurrections in Saga, which is somewhat delicious considering how Curdy's ghost or astral projection or idea or whatever you want to call him in volume eight appears. Uh, So he does get to do like this weird resurrection in volume eight, which we can get into when we have the actual bulk of this conversation. But like Vaughn's actual quote about this volume, Lisa, and its tone is, quote, Yeah, this is a relatively upbeat arc, much more hopeful than our previous bleak storyline. Well, mostly hopeful. Uh, Fiona thought we were overdue to visit an alien planet with more of a spaghetti Western vibe, which helped inspire these next few issues. A fun-filled adventure called The Coffin. It's about our heroes' quest for more affordable health care, end quote. For me, the linchpin word is relatively. It's relatively upbeat relative to what we have no idea and I would hate to ask, frankly. Right. And if you look at volume six's climax with this upbeat reveal that Alana is pregnant with their second child and then compare it to volume seven's climax of her miscarriage and then Curdy's family being obliterated on Fang... It makes you question Vaughn and Staples' like devilish nature, Lisa. Like, whatever joy is introduced in Saga will be rewarded with agony. But that's kind of life. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. But like, you know, so all right, you look at volume eight's ending with Hazel finding a new brother in Squire, and you gotta go like, uh-oh. What the hell is coming in volume nine? And we kind of already know what's coming in volume nine. We just can't trust any upbeat or fun arcs 
from these creators and it does make me like think of them as villains of sort or <laughs> as cruel creators like I know I do agree like it's trying to replicate the roller coaster that is life that little granny talked about in the movie Parenthood for all you Ron Howard fans um, it's not the merry-go-round it's got the ups and it's got the downs and yeah okay but like you look at volume seven you look at volume eight you look at where they pick up in the next uh, arc of saga that's in singles and it does feel like there is a uh, a savage glee from the creators in antagonizing their readers i do think that they delight in breaking our hearts but i also think that uh, a lot of saga is a reminder to love while we can yeah and that um like particularly in this arc whenever you get to meet a new person and spend time with them no matter how brief it is always like a privilege and and we should be really grateful yeah 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 i, I ultimately that's where i come down on and that's you know it's one of the reasons why i like saga so much but uh yeah i mean it is hard it quit is being hard. mean to me guys <laughs> <laughs> uh but you know marco and alana they're currently in our waiting room waiting for their counseling session to begin but before we can do that we got to check in with our love expert lisa who is that and how are they going to help our sci-fi lovebirds and us this week our relationship expert for marco and alana is helen russell using her book, How to Be Sad, colon, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad. Helen Russell is an author who has dedicated her career to researching and considering cultural approaches to emotions. How to Be Sad is part self-help, part memoir, as she looks into our anti-sadness culture and how it negatively impacted Helen and her family following her sister's death from SIDS. The book includes cited research and interviews from psychologists, neuropharmacologists, grief counselors, geneticists, psychotherapists, neuroscientists, doctors, and dietitians, and submits that by reframing our cultural perspective on sadness, we might be better equipped to reap the benefits of that emotion. In our last session, we were integrating the concepts of part two, how to be sad, entitled how to look after ourselves when we're sad. And I'd like to continue to encourage Marco and Alana to lean into the look after part of that title. Yes. I know sometimes I have to step outside of myself to recognize my needs. And, and when I'm experiencing a negative affect like sadness, it can help to think of myself as my inner child and think, oh, sweetheart, what can I do for you? What, can, what do you need? Yeah, that was helping me with the whole Foggy Nelson thing. Yeah, I think... This will be a real challenge for Alana because I think she really sees herself as the matriarch of her little tribe, not just Hazel and Marco, but also whomever they have with them on the journey. But I think right now, more than ever, Alana is going to have to go against her inclination to take of, mm. care of others so that she can look after herself following her miscarriage. In this session, we're going to pull from part two, how to talk about being sad, a lot of which can be reduced down to like Nike swoosh, just do it. <laughs> Except for this swoosh is made entirely of tears. <laughs> but I think what Helen Russell is advocating for is a cultural shift. And that's going to mean changing up our language to better engage with our own sadness, but also create a safe space around us where people can feel free to feel sad yeah. if they have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we were talking about uh, like on, in our first episode back mm -hmm. with Saga is being comfortable witnessing sadness as much as being comfortable being sad in front of others. 
yeah, it's hard and doable if you have a handy dandy numbered list. Oh, do you got one of those? I do. And number one is shake off the shame. Sadness is the natural response to emotional pain, feelings of loss, helplessness, hopelessness, or disappointment, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. We know all about shame from our sessions with Thanos and Death, when (laughs) shame expert and vulnerability champion Brene Brown was our love expert. Oh, man, yes. Shame comes from the fear of social rejection and disconnection, and it derives its power from the unspeakable. Helen Russell mentions that shame like sadness, also serves a function described by the social self-preservation theory. We are communal animals, and part of our survival depends on us being part of the pack. So so when we behave in a way that threatens our social value or standing, our self-esteem goes down and our cortisol goes up, Mm. which we experience as shame. It's a defense mechanism. So I'm going to go ahead and put a link in the show notes to our Thanos and death episodes and our conversation around shame. I found those episodes to be very helpful for myself, and I think if you have not listened to those episodes or if you haven't listened to them recently, I think you could gain some from them, dear listener. I often find myself mentally going back to many of the things we've learned from Brene Brown, not just about what she says about shame, but what she says about hope. Mm. But Russell also points out that we as a culture perpetuate what should and should not induce shame by what we do and do not talk about. She uses as her example, miscarriages. According to the Mayo Clinic, one in five pregnancies ends in miscarriage, but it's rarely ever talked about, and few parents are allowed to grieve properly. According to research published in 2015, the primary companion for CNS disorders, 20% of women who miscarry become symptomatic for depression and or anxiety. To quote Russell, the silence is toxic and leads to shame. I think we need to be giving Alana space and all people who have miscarriages to talk about their miscarriage to alleviate any shame they may have around it. Melissa Ragsdale over at Bustle speaks about this directly using Saga Volume 8 as the framework for their conversation. I'll include a link in the show notes for that article as well. It's just another example of why representation matters and sharing our stories matter because it alleviates and dissipates the power of shame. Number two is to stop apologizing for feelings. I love this quote. I just had to include it. Viewing sadness as an embarrassing imposition seems particularly punishing since it occurs at times we need more support than ever. Mm, Sadness is normal. Grief is normal. We shouldn't apologize for our emotions. That's the end of the quote. So good, yeah. By apologizing for our own emotions, not only are we reinforcing the shame we may feel, we're also telling the person we're apologizing to that you expect an apology mm. when they feel an emotion. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's it, the ripple of communication that occurs in an action like that. Yeah. Part of not apologizing for your feelings is not participating in grief ranking. Psychologist and Berkeley scholar Harvey Peskin defined grief ranking as a commonplace occurrence when a member of a family dies. The tendency is for the other members of the family to begin doing mental math of who gets to be the most sad, (laughs) the person deemed closest to the deceased, to who is the least entitled to their grief. 
Peskin referred to grief ranking as not only unwarranted, but a violation of our basic human right to grieve. I'm going to throw another link in the show notes, Lisa, because this reminds me of an interview I was just listening with Matt Reeves, the director of The Batman on the Elvis Mitchell podcast. He's the guy, his first film was the quote unquote romantic comedy, The Pallbearer with David Schwimmer and Gwyneth Paltrow. And it's based on a real life experience where he got an unexpected call being asked to be a pallbearer. And he was surprised because he's like, well, my relationship with this person's not that strong. And then it creates this whole like grief ranking thing that happens that happened in his life that then inspired the film. I think that grief ranking, um, like all it does is create resentment and encourages you to be judging other people about how they experience their emotions. And I see it on, um, on the bird app all of the time, whenever we're judging people for they're expressing their grief over the death of a celebrity as if they're not entitled to it. And I've done it. I've been guilty of it myself. And it's just a reminder to um, allow people to create their own rituals about how they like to grieve and just take the judgment away from it. Cause it, I think it's good for your own heart just as it is good for the other person. And that's what we have been working really hard these last couple of months in our relationship is this idea of removing judgment from all kinds of scenarios. Like uh, it's, it's very difficult because it's easy to snap to like, Oh, I don't like that. And I don't like you for doing that. Uh, trying to remove the judgment and observe why things might be happening from the perspectives of all sides. That's like, that's, that's, that is what I am. Um, what's the word I'm cultivating right now. Yeah. I'm exploring. Yeah. I'm working on. And while like we're talking about it in the context of losing a family member or, or death, I think that we also do grief ranking, Uh, Just with the little things as well, we look at someone and go, like, why does that person have the right to complain? Because they have this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Like, everybody has the right to their sadness, to their grief, to their negative affect. I will never forget working at Barnes & Noble and my boss right above me, won't name them, Mm -hmm. said, like, you know what? I know that my life's not as miserable as that person, but I deserve my sadness. And at the time, I kind of, like, rejected that. I was like, oh, what? But now I'm like, no, we just because our life might not be as harsh as another person's life doesn't mean we don't experience sadness and we don't have to deal with sadness. And I think that by creating a culture that allows people to express their sadness in healthy ways, it will cut down on people expressing their sadness in unhealthy ways Mm. where they're lashing out or becoming violent Mm. or becoming um, abusive. Mm, Yeah. with their language. Yeah, 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 hopefully. But that does require all of us to work on it. We all need to do better operating with sadness. Absolutely. Number three, beware of the fallacy of arrival and summit syndrome. Oh, man. Both the fallacy of arrival and summit syndrome have to do with our goal-seeking brains. According to Harvard University psychologist Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, 
Conventional wisdom tells us that happiness will come after the fulfillment of goals. Yeah. This is because goal-seeking stimulates the reward centers of our brains. As we approach our goals, the anticipation releases the neurotransmitter dopamine, which delivers a sense of accomplishment. The fallacy of arrival comes from the misguided belief that we will be happier once we meet a goal, like settling down in the suburbs of Gardenia, or starting our acting career on the circuit, or finally getting rid of Sir Robot. When we reach that goal, it may not meet our perhaps too high expectations, and we feel disappointed and sad. Or maybe it does meet our expectations, but we still encounter life's inevitable lows, and now we're feeling disillusioned. Mm. Summit syndrome is when you get hooked on the dopamine hit of reaching one goal that you have to set increasingly higher goals to maintain your self-esteem. The rush of dopamine as you hit and reach a goal feels amazing, but then the moment you reach the goal, the dopamine drops off and there is a come down effect. Yeah, we, I know this. Yeah, me too. Like every time we put out a podcast, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I always feel a dip of sadness or... Particularly when I would do community theater, you mm. spend three months putting together this show and you have your two weekends or three weekends of performances. And after that, you don't know what to do with your life and you feel yeah. sad and confused. You write an article, you work hours, maybe days on that article, it launches and, you know, a few people read it. Right, right. Dr. Ben Shahar says that we can avoid both the fallacy of arrival and summit syndrome by setting intrinsic goals over extrinsic goals. Extrinsic goals are goals that are external, money, power, public approval, parental validation, number of podcast downloads, <laughs> numbers of Twitter followers. Intrinsic goals are goals that are aligned to your values that cannot be strictly measured, like being creative out of the passion that you have and making something that's meaningful to you. Yeah. I think that with all Olana, Marco, and Hazel have been through, they're actually really good at managing their expectations and living by their principles, especially since Marco and Alana's reunion in volume five, they've just mm. been really grateful for every moment that they have together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're gonna have to hold on to that gratefulness. <laughs> Number four, have someone's to talk to. <laughs> I emphasize the z because it should be more than one someone. Mm. She recommends three avenues for establishing someone's, but since we are actually already in a numbered list, that means I'm going to have to resort to a bulleted list. Uh, no, not a bulleted list. Patow! Uh. Go pro. Talk to a therapist. Mm. A therapist is an expert at being a listener. They provide a safe space to talk about your feelings and can help give you the tools you may not know that you're asking for. Patow! Uh. Buddy system. Talk to a friend. Russell has a specific friend that she calls when her brain seem, seems to be dialed mm. into, excuse my language or her language, shit FM. <laughs> shit FM is such a great term because when she's, when you hear it, you know exactly yes. what she's talking about. When your brain is just chattering and all of it is making you feel terrible. I am dialed in. If you're feeling grouchy, you may in fact be feeling lonely. So call a close friend or family member and perhaps have a vent fest or just a distraction, but let it be reciprocal. Mm. They might have some gripes for you too. And Patow? Uh. 
Tend your social support network. Multiple studies have shown that having a support network of close social connections can actually make your life happier and longer. Mm. So be there for your network and let your network be there for you. This is actually something I am challenged by. I have a hard time maintaining my social support sure. network because I, I don't reach out enough. It's when my love tank is full, and so when my love tank is am empty, I feel guilty reaching out. And the pandemic has made things even more difficult. Like, this has been really hard to maintain this over these last two years. It's weird out there. And I think that Marco and Alana have been bouncing around from planet to planet, and it's hard to maintain uh, a number of tight connections when you're moving around a lot. It, and, you know. Global pandemic. And global pandemic. Yeah. So, um my little tag for that recommendation is to do the best you can with what you've got and appreciate every time you have an opportunity to connect to another person. Yeah, and I think this is a great way to lead into our next segment, Words of Affirmation. Affirmations. I've added, you can't hear it on the podcast, but I've added a little shimmy every time I do the Words of Affirmation. This is why we should be on YouTube, Lisa. No, you're the only person who gets to see my shimmy because you are my beloved. I love your shimmy and I want the world to love your shimmy too. Well, my shimmy and I will uh, discuss that separately <laughs> and privately. But for this week, our words of affirmation, we'll be reading one of our much appreciated five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We have many ways for you to support the podcast. We have a Patreon. You can follow us and interact with us on social media. You can just simply listen every week. All of these things are important and help our podcast reach more listeners. Yeah. And so this five-star review is on Apple Podcast. It comes from Benjamin A.K. Uh, and the title is Great Job! Exclamation mark. Five stars. And this is what it reads. Great job! Exclamation mark. Thank you so much. I do sometimes feel like I'm doing a job and I don't know if it's great or not. I mean, in all seriousness, just taking the few seconds that it took to write the words great job and give us five stars. Like I read that I had like a little laugh and I was also like. Uh, the, 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 a wave of gratitude came over me because, you know, Benjamin took the time out of the day to give us a five-star review. And yes, it does help the podcast. We do reach more listeners when you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So, you know, in all sincerity, Benjamin, thank you. Thank you so much. Here's another suggestion for a five-star review. Hey, Brad. Yeah? You're an even more handsome <laughs> Foggy. Yeah. You know what? Bonus points for all Foggy Nelson references in Apple Podcast reviews going forward. We will read them on the air. We've been a little, uh, you know, like um, we've fallen behind reading our reviews on the air, but we're recommitting to reading them on the podcast. So, yeah, get them to our ears and we will get them back to everyone else's ears. We read with our eyes. Not our ears. Get them to our eyes, and then we'll get them to your ears. That works too, Lisa. ODPL. 
Uh, do you mean okie dokie pokey loki? That I do. Yeah, I'm, your famous catchphrase. It's my new catchphrase. I'm gonna make it. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna go viral with it. Okie dokie pokey loki. On to the main event. This week we're discussing saga issues 43 through 48, which were collected in trade paperback volume eight, written by Brian K. Vaughn, fully illustrated by Fiona Staples, and lettered by Phonographics. The issues were originally published between May 2017 and October 2017. Here's the basic plot synopsis taken from Goodreads. After the traumatic events of the war for Fang, Hazel, her parents, and their surviving companions embark on a life-changing adventure at the westernmost edge of the universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Also, abortion town. Yeah. Howdy. So, uh, Marco and Alana, right this way, let's leave the waiting room. Let's go through these swinging dual doors into session with Brad and Lisa. I like the idea that we have a Western-style office. Well, we've set up camp in abortion town, Lisa. Oh, okay, I get the bit. We're in abortion town, right, right? And, like, the, the, the first page of the first issue of this arc, this very fun arc, turning... You know, the cover open and then being like, welcome to abortion town. Uh, Like, you know, clearly Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples are delighting in the idea of how people are going to react to that page. And it's comical, but also we as readers know why Alana is in abortion town because she is carrying a dead baby in her belly and uh, she's a coffin. What a hoot. Uh, yes, fun arc. Yeah, I, I say that because a Dr. Sheriff is an owl. Oh, did yeah. Did you notice that? I did. I understood that, but maybe some of our listeners didn't. It's actually a great cosplay. The little <laughs> dress with the Dr. Stethoscope yeah. and the owl face. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the pink boots. Fiona Staples, over and over and over again, proves what an incredible designer she is. Like, every character in Saga, you want an action figure. You want a plushie. You want to know the personal history. I want to go deeper into abortion town. All of those little uh, huts made out of cacti and cut right out of the rock. It looks so interesting. Um, But we're there with Alana and Sir Robot. And Sir Robot is uh, posing as Earl Robot the (laughs) 51st. Yeah. And they tell Dr. Sheriff that Alana is pregnant with his child. And Dr. Sheriff is like, whoa, I, I didn't even know that was a possibility, and they're like, yeah, but horrible deformities, and we have no idea, so it's better that this is just taken care of quietly. It's interesting that, you know, this little skit that they're putting on somewhat mirrors, you know, the shock that people had when they discovered that Hazel was a possibility, but what what is actually weird about this scene for me is that part of their skit omits the fact that there is a dead child inside Alana. Like, it's not like the, like, why create this scenario where, oh, we're afraid this baby is going to die, and that causes, you know, the sheriff to say, like, well, we don't do that, you're too far along, you should go to the Badlands. Why not at that point say, like, you know, actually, like, the child has already died inside me? Why omit the miscarriage? So, um, this is just me kind of closing that plot loop for myself. Uh But Alana is furious at Sir Robot for him getting on Fadeaway 
and then putting her entire family in danger. Yeah, and also coming on to her, right? And then threatening suicide in front of her. So when he's like, oh, I've got this great plan to get the the um, baby removed, um, she's like, your plan is never going to work. It's a stupid plan, and I'll prove it to you. Mm, okay. So, like, to me, I see Alana... If we were to do the four tendencies, I see Alana as an obliger tendency. Mm -hmm. She loves to help. She loves to be of service. She loves to um, be part of helping her tribe. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is a moment of obliger rebellion. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want Sir Robot in her family anymore. And this is her taking this opportunity to eject him. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that... That works for me. I had not considered that, but I think that absolutely tracks with where she is on this journey. Yeah, because that that plot hiccup really messed with my head. Of- I love how you are referring to it as a plot hiccup, a plot loop, uh, rather than just a plot hole. <laughs> like, it feels like this has to happen to get us to where Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples really want us to go. Yeah, but that's hilarious because... Abortion Town doesn't have to exist. As far as I know, we never go back. Right, right, right. But they do want to have a political conversation. They want to have a chat with the reader, which I am open to. But I also feel like the miscarriage story and the abortion story kind of muddy each other in this volume. I agree. But I also feel like the um, point that they're making with this scene is an important one. When Dr. Sheriff can't provide the late-term abortion because of the restrictions, Dr. Sheriff refers Alana to a more dangerous place, pointing out that when women have restrictions put on their health care options, they're ultimately put in danger. Right, right, right. And the conversation is clearly more important than whatever, like, narrative quibbles I have regarding, you know, the withholding of information. And I think Alana's motivations are justified when um, she says to Sir Robot, like, hey, our time together is done. I don't care where you end up. And we see on Sir Robot's face, um, like a, a hand reaching out of water, like he's drowning. So she's just taking this as an opportunity to sever this relationship. And then after that, we actually get a little montage catch up to where we are in the story. And included in that is the moments right after Alana loses the baby. Um, Petricor returns from the engine room and with her amazing senses, she can smell that Alana has lost the child and she immediately starts worshiping her. Yeah. And on wreath in some religious sects, a woman who has lost a child becomes a sacred vessel. And um, one of the things that Helen Russell talked about in How to Be Sad is that one of the things that makes sadness easier to handle is to have a ritual around it. And on wreath, when a woman loses a child, there is something called a curatage ceremony Mm -hmm. where the baby is removed. And um, I think that our culture doesn't really have a ritual for when a baby, when a woman loses a wanted pregnancy Mm -hmm. and um, Marco, because of his 
you know, religious history smacks down the idea of having any kind of ceremonial removal. But I think as this volume, like, as we go through this volume, a ritual kind of presents itself in a really beautiful way. Yes, yes, yes. And it should also be noted that this is when, like, Sir Robot saves his hide by coming up with this idea of, like, I know a town Mm -hmm. that we could take Alana to. And then, of course, that erupts in his own face and he is left um, stranded. And then we're all caught up and the treehouse is taking root kind of between abortion town and the Badlands. And there's this interesting sequence where Marco is digging a trench to place their sewage and Hazel and Petricor are having a conversation and saying like, why why is Marco doing this? Hazel asks, because like, doesn't like all our sewage just get shot out into space? Like, it's not really an issue. This doesn't have to be a thing. And Petricor goes like, yes, it's interesting. You know, and clearly Marco is throwing himself into a physical feat to hide whatever hell is living inside his head. Yeah, he's getting busy. He's getting busy, that's right. We know from previous sessions with Marco and Alana, staying busy is one of the most common ways we try and fail to avoid sadness. We figure if our to-do list is filled and not one of those to-do things is to like actually feel my and process my emotions, like we won't have to do that thing. Well, Marco's very lucky because his to-do list is constantly growing because he builds this trench to put his sewage and then the sewage attacks him. (laughs) The dung people arrive. And I love the concept of the dung people where these microbes in the soil animate feces absolutely disgusting, absolutely terrifying. And when Hazel sees them, (laughs) she yells a swear, (laughs) oh, effing. And Marco goes like, we told you that that's not a nice word. And Alana goes, and you're still not using it properly. It's so good. And like uh, parenting around swearing as a like a, a child free person, I always find fascinating. Yeah, I'm always I'm always fascinated by it because we have several friends with different philosophies around profanity, and you know, like Lisa and I, we love swearing. We do. We tend not to do it on this podcast because we want that clean rating, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we love swearing, and we do sometimes wonder, you know, because of our relationships with our nibblings, like, well, how would we raise our child around the f word? And my my. My philosophy, as if anybody cares, is like there, like it's the same way that one of my brothers is doing it. Is well, that's an at-home word. <laughs> that's an at-home word. You don't do it. At, like it's not polite. I like maintaining the taboo around swearing, right? Well, because it does serve a function. I I remember. I think you've talked about this study in past episodes. Mm-hmm. But people who are under a physical stress if they're able to release that physical pain with profanity, there is actual psychic relief from swear words. So if we make it okay for everyone to say the F-bomb- All of the time. Then we lose that ability, that superpower behind swearing. I think that if we make the F word a common word, we'll just make up another word. I I think that it is part of 
the human condition to have taboo words and ideas. Yeah, frack, man, frack. <laughs> there is nothing I love more in fiction than fake swears, like shnikes, holy shnikes. I always, whenever I encounter them, try to fold them into my vernacular, <laughs> yeah. but they eventually just fall away in um, preference of the real thing. I mean, you go to a con and you start hearing people using the word frack as if it was normal. It's a little strange. I love it. And if anybody needs the psychic relief of swears, it is Hazel. Yes. And you can tell from the conversation that she's having with Petricor mm. because in prison, she encountered Petricor's body and saw that she's a trans woman. And Petricor has asked her to keep it a secret. Hazel expresses to her concerns that she doesn't know what her body is going to do next. Like, I didn't have wings, and now I have wings, and I didn't have horns, and now I have horns, and I and now I've seen your body, and the possibilities of what my body can turn into seem endless to me. Mm. And I think that, you know, worrying is the cognitive manifestation of anxiety, mm. and I think that she's been under such intense, continuous stress that... She is now worrying about all kinds of external things that I feel like she can't talk to her parents about. Yeah. But the conversation climaxes with Petricor giving Hazel like the most beautiful words of affirmation. Hazel says, like, I just wish I was normal. Like, she's so aware that there is no one in the galaxy like her. And Petricor says, and I'm just going to do the direct quote, little one. You are unlike anyone who has ever existed, and that makes you exactly like everyone who has ever existed. It's such a great affirmation. It's a panel that you want to cut out and put on your trapper keeper. We should all be looking at this panel every day. It is so beautiful. Uh, this does lead into some body changes, but not for Hazel. We learn quickly that Alana is developing powers because of the child inside her. Like when the dung people attack, she's able to defeat them by spewing fire from her hand. And then like this starts to manifest in an actual resurrection of sorts of the child. Like she projects astrally an image of what her kid that has died inside her could look like in the future. And it is somewhat sentient. Alana is doing amazing things, but it is also killing her. She is becoming terribly sick. Uh, the astral projection thing causes tremendous heart problems, even for someone who is from Wreath. Yeah, so they need to get the baby out of her. They got to get to the Badlands. They need to have this operation immediately. But she's also processing some guilt over having lost the baby. And we see this in a fadeaway-like dream sequence where she is remembering a time that w she was in bed with a guy named Heath. And <laughs> oh, Heath, Heath asked her if she wanted to ever have kids. And she said, no, I did not. I am a selfish person. Everybody who knows me knows that. So can you imagine me caring for someone else? And then Heath becomes demonic and is like, of course, I can't see you being a parent because you're just a drug addict and a terrible person. And then she wakes up from that dream and she sees Marco. And what she feels for Marco is gratitude because she feels like 
the reason I can parent is because of my relationship with Marco and Marco is making me better. Yeah. And she gives him like a little sleepy kiss. It's, it's so sweet. Very, very sweet. And then that's when Curdy, the projection of uh, her child, her dead child appears. And, you know, like the, the idea that this kid could have been named Curdy you know, based off of that young, sweet boy on Fang, like, like in, in a series of punishing developments, Saga just like keeps giving you a chef kiss. Like when, you know, like it's me, Curdy, like, oh, my heart, my heart, your heart, Alana, I'm dying, you're dying. That was actually Curdy's grandmother's last request before right. she was left on Fang. Far, that I if forgot. you have a son... Name it Curdy. So this is further proof that Alana is an obliger because someone says, name your son Curdy. She's like, of course I will. Even my astral projection will be named it. But when I first saw the panel where we see Curdy for the first time, mm. I was so shocked and confused. Like, what is happening? Have we entered a parallel universe? <laughs> Does Hazel still exist? <laughs> but I love the idea of... so. The way Marco explains it, part of wreath magic is the ability to project your prediction for the future. So Curdy is not really the son they never had. Curdy is the son that Alana thought she was going to have. Yeah, brutal. And on wreath, this power is used to anticipate war scenarios, but for Alana, this is that ritual that I was referencing before, this opportunity to say goodbye to the family member that she wanted so badly. Yeah, and it's an opportunity for Marco as well. And, and Hazel. for Hazel, right? Which leads to maybe the most beautiful and devastating panel in this entire volume when the surgery is finally completed and Curdy fades away. But Marco tells Alana the entire time she is projecting Curdy, she is putting herself in grave danger, that this particular spell is connected to heart failure. And I think that creates the stakes of how important it is for Alana to have this moment, that it is so important for her and for Hazel to say goodbye to the idea of Curdy that she's willing to risk her life. Back in Abortion Town, Sheriff Doctor described the Badlands as a place of monsters. And when we finally do get to the Badlands, we are confronted by a monster, this wolf creature covered in blood, licking her lips. She is quite terrifying, but we quickly come to understand that this is Endwife. She is a doctor like any other doctor, just trying to help, but has limited resources. And when Marco insists on going to the operating room with the unconscious Alana, Endwife is extremely patient with him as he kind of processes yeah. some of his reservations about abortion. He was raised by his father to be pro-life, but also extremely pro-war, which is very complicated. And... Marco expresses that he's come to this place where like all violence is wrong. And we know this about Marco and and wife goes like your ideology yeah. is all well and good, 
but right here where we are is reality. And in reality, we have to consider the elephant in the room, <laughs> which is literal in this scene. There, I did not pick up on that, Lisa. It is the elephant in the room. There is a patient sharing the operating room, recuperating, and that patient was very far along, but then found out that her child was going to have this brain defect that would have them dying within hours of birth. And that elephant was having a health emergency yeah. and and didn't have time for everyone to work their ideologies about out about late-term abortion. Yeah, like, we're sorry, Marco, that this makes you uncomfortable, but women are dying. Exactly. We then cut away from the operating table back to Curdy and Hazel, or Curdy 2 and Hazel, having their final conversation before Curdy fades away. So this is Hazel's opportunity to participate in the ritual and say goodbye to the sibling that she was anticipating. I, I can imagine it must be very hard for kids to process their parents' miscarriage. Like, I was going to have a baby brother and, or sister yeah. and... Yeah. They were talking about how children are resilient and they can get through anything and they can recover. And we have seen examples of that with Hazel. At the same time, we have to remember, like, Hazel is telling the story, too. Like, adult Hazel, through the narration, we see the impact of this event on her life. And, you know, what Saga ultimately is, is her story recontextualizing her life experience, but also everything her parents went through, everything her childhood self went through. Like, Saga is such a profound comic because of that adult Hazel point of view. It also reminds me of the narration that ended the previous volume as mm. Curdy was being yeah. swallowed up on Fang. Yeah. Is, like, the, the relationships that I find myself missing the most were the relationships that that didn't get to continue. And I had to let go of the idea of what I thought the relationship was going to be. Yeah, and what's awesome about volume eight is while Hazel is finally saying goodbye to the brother she never had, we also know that this story is setting up the brother she will have in Squire. And that's like the climax of this issue is she will have a brother. What I cherish about Hazel and Curdy 2's relationship was how ordinary mm. their interaction was as siblings. Mm. They're squabbling and Curdy is farting in her face That's and they're so laughing hysterically. Curdy has the best farts, Lisa. He does, but in the waiting room, mm. she gets to sum up how she feels about death mm. in this one scene where like she's been losing people left and right and has not really had the opportunity to talk about it. Mm. And she talks about Isabel who's the closest thing to Curdy she has experienced before because Isabel was a ghost. Yeah, we didn't even really talk about last volume, Isabel's passing. Like, just, like, that is such a big moment in Saga to lose her and was a huge shock to me as a reader first time through. And a huge shock to Hazel yeah. because, turns out, Isabel was living in Hazel's heart yeah. and she felt Isabel leave. Ugh. And so... um, 
Curdy knows that he's going to cease to exist. And so he asks Hazel to sing him a lullaby. I'm about to cry. Lisa's going to cry, everyone. And um, Hazel sings Curdy a lullaby that Isabel had sung to her. And it's so funny. And I kept rereading and rereading the um, the song to figure out what melody um, Brian K. Vaughn wrote this lullaby to. And um, are you gonna do it? I'm gonna try. All right. I'm not sure if this is the right melody, but this is the one that locked in for me. And so I think it is. Good night, chubby baby. I can't rock you no more. I'm sorry, chubby baby, but my arms are getting slower. Good night, chubby baby. I can't do it. It's too sad. I can't do it. It's too sad. You got me crying. But it really evokes Isabel's place in her life as kind of this teenage babysitter figure who really desperately wants to be a good influence on Hazel and... Oh my God! <laughs> and like, it Lisa, ends with, um, uh, uh, the, you're the perfect size baby, so never accept fakey beauty standards or any unhealthy body issues from this dumb, th- dumb song. And um, Curdy laughs, and then he disappears, and Hazel is sitting alone on the couch saying, "Goodbye, baby brother," and it's just so beautiful. And Hazel's narration says, like, it's funny which random moments from the past (laughs) our minds choose to cling to, isn't it? Random moments? (laughs) Like, not a random moment. Uh, But the page turn says, okay, maybe more interesting (sighs) than funny. Yeah. But still, like, I, I think that even though this is adult Hazel's recollection of her own life, I still get the sense that Hazel narrator is still working through yeah. what this means to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then I think that's like what I was trying to say about how, like what makes this comic so special. It's like you're witnessing two Hazels working out the same moments in their minds at the same time. And I think this reflects the idea that grief is a kind of sadness that never actually goes away, Mm. that it creates kind of a monument in your psyche around which the the rest of your personality kind of builds. The loss of Curdie will always, both Curdies, the Mm. loss of both Curdies will always be part of Hazel's narrative and always be a source of sadness. And that sadness is not a bad thing. That Mm. sadness is a monument to these ideas that were these relationships. And the last couple of issues of volume eight really don't have anything to do. Well, I won't say they don't have anything to do with Marco and Alana, but Marco and Alana are not the focus of these two issues. We have the issue of the will being interrogated and tortured. uh, And we have goose and squire hunting the dreadnought. Um, and I like the last issue, the, the goose and squire issue may be my favorite issue of the entire volume. I love goose and squire as a pair. And I love goose being put in this position of a leader and having to make sure that everyone around them is going to survive and be fed. We cannot kill Frendo. Frendo is a friend, 
but I'm also willing to let Frendo be food if it means we're all going to die. I have to keep Squire alive. Uh, but, you know, there's a dreadnought. There's an invisible thing out there. We're going to go hunt him. Squire can see the frequency of the dreadnought. So together we can work this out. It doesn't quite go as they were hoping, but thankfully, Sir Robot, Marco, Alana, and Hazel arrive in the nick of time. They do not have to sacrifice and eat Frendo. Oh, and Petricor. Petricor and Robot have entered into a relationship together, Lisa. They have connected romantically. Yes, yes, And I'm yes. so excited. Future Saga CBCC episodes. But as uh, Goose and Squire are exiting the woods, we get a really sweet and kind of uh, cold reunion between Sir Robot and Squire because they have that kind of chivalry Sir Arthur thing going on. There's probably no other character that I have the most complicated feelings towards than Robot. Mm. You know, like, uh, I hate him, I love him, I pity him, uh, I root for him. But (sighs) he is so excited to be reunited with his son, but his son like kneels before him, like the royalty that he (laughs) no longer is. And uh, Hazel sees that and goes like, why aren't you hugging your dad, you weirdo? (laughs) And um, we get to see Alana and Alana is happy and fully recovered. And um, I think Hazel is even a little older. I think that we have another time jump here. A little bit, maybe a little bit. But, Hazel is like, do you even know what a fidget spinner is, you weirdo? I've already said weirdo. You know what's funny is I was just talking this morning with Jackie on our Patreon Slack about Brian K. Vaughn's Runaways comic and Uh how like Runaways is like loaded with pop culture references and how those pop culture references kind of get in the way. And I was like, oh, I bet that's the case. And then I'm reading this issue and we get to the fidget spinner and it really pulled me out. Oh yeah, it's a real distraction. But it does lead to her taking Squire by the hand and we see Hazel's narration, one day a boy decided to break the rules and that boy would become my brother. Such a good ending. And we see the three parents in the background watching them run away and Marco and Alana are embracing and we see Sir Robot with his hand to his heart, like clearly so moved by seeing them together. It's this moment where you just like, you accept Robot for who he is. You know, like you, that this is the moment where it's like, I, I want good things for him. Like I, I do have this ideology that I'm working out in myself where it's like, no person is unforgivable. Yeah. If the person is willing to change, yeah. then I, then I have to allow that to happen. And I, and I think that that's what's happening for uh, you know, Sir Robot. Uh, it's a Hopefully. constant struggle for me, but I think like, forgiveness is a challenge. It's a practice. I do believe in rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and characters in this book really, really make you struggle with they that. Test, they test you. They test you. But now we're at a point, Lisa, like our next episode... Our next volume is the big volume of Saga, the big volume of Marco and Alana's relationship. How are you feeling about this book, about this couple going into volume nine? Volume eight ends 
very optimistically uh-huh. with Hazel and Squire holding hands and running off into the future. And also having like that tremendous emotional like outpouring with Curdy 2 fading away. And I can't help but do try to do like the arithmetic <laughs> mentally of, okay, how exactly are they going to become siblings? Is this going to involve perhaps Sir Robot being separated or dying oh, or oh, something uh-huh. like that? Or is it just going to be like they're going to be together so much that they become siblings? And then I'm also doing the arithmetic to like, I know the spoiler. Okay, so real quick, for those that don't know the spoiler and don't want to know the spoiler, I'm going to need you to skip ahead, let's say like three, four minutes. I don't know exactly, but skip ahead. I want Lisa to state what she thinks the big spoiler is. Go. The big spoiler is that Marco dies. Okay. Right? Am I correct? Oh, you Do you want me to tell you? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, that is what I told you. After I read that issue, that Marco dies. So maybe he doesn't? I'm not, I like, I don't know. Like, okay. Spoilers I, for Saga. Marco does die. Okay. Because right. I see the introduction of this, like, I've seen uh, on covers and stuff, this other kind of a koala looking <laughs> MFer. <laughs> yes, yes. That I don't know who he is. I'm not going to talk about him. <laughs> okay. But um, so I know that. I have to allow my heart to be open to change, but I also know that it is going to be broken. Yeah, so our next episode on Saga will be Saga Volume 9. We're going to discuss that entire thing, and we will read the next three issues that are currently published by Image Comics. Uh, I don't know if we're going to necessarily focus a ton on those issues, but I just want to get Lisa caught up to where we are on Saga. So um, the date for the final volume of Saga has been announced. Yeah, it's, I don't have it before me, but it's like October something. So, yeah, it is October something. Yeah. So do we want to make a pact here and now that we will cover that final issue when it final volume when it comes out. I like that idea. Okay. I do like that idea. I think that is a, a, a pact we shouldn't make until the next episode. Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, but where we are right now is at a point where we discuss what we took from our experience with volume eight. Uh, how do we feel about them as a couple? How do we feel about ourselves as a couple? How what are we pulling out of How to Be Sad and Helen Russell? I feel like. For the past two volumes, Marco and Alana's relationship has been in this really beautiful and supportive place. I do feel like Marco, if anyone hasn't, Marco hasn't fully processed his sadness after losing Alana's pregnancy. He has really just been in... um, you know, survival mode. Yeah, and he also really hasn't processed his relationship with violence and Mm -hmm. as a violent person. But I think that we've seen it reinforced several times that they see each other as the person who makes them better. They see each other as this tremendous support system. And I think that that is what a relationship should be. Like, we should have a growth mindset. We understand that our relationship is going to change. We're going to change as individuals, but through that, we're going to do the best we can to grow together. Mm. Um, I really like what Helen Russell had to say in part two of the book about 
changing our vernacular around feelings, that we stop apologizing for our feelings, that we create space for other people to talk about feelings around us. There were things in this part um, of how to be sad that I did purposefully skip just because um, I didn't think that I could properly present Helen Russell's perspective um, because she does talk about um, perhaps having a cultural over-dependence on SSRIs. Mm. And I felt like... Mm, interesting. I felt like the way that she was talking about it was very judgmental. And I do think that our cultural relationship with mental health is changing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can lead to an increased... Um, prescription for SSRIs because people who wouldn't have sought out help before are now seeking Mm -hmm. it out Mm -hmm. and um, getting the help that they needed. So I kind of removed that aspect from that part because I don't know, because of my personal relationship with mental health and taking SSRIs and and people in my family taking SSRIs was complicating the way I was interpreting what she was saying. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I I appreciate that uh, tremendously, Lisa. Thank you for doing the hard work for me. But what are your takeaways with this session? Well, I mean, on the Marco and Alana front, I do feel like they are on solid ground as a couple. I am very interested where Marco is in his journey. Like, I feel like he has the most growth still left to do. I think that I see like grief ranking in this situation Mm, mm, where mm. um, Marco knows that his wife is physically and emotionally suffering from the loss of the pregnancy. And he sees what Hazel is going through um, interacting with Curdy too. Yeah. And I think that he has really put his emotions on the back seat. Yeah. And I think that that, that that sadness is going to have to express itself yes, at some point. Yes, and so this is my third time reading this arc, but volume nine I have only read once in singles. Mm. So this will be my first time reading volume nine uh, or rereading volume nine. So I'm very, like, I'm zeroed in on Marco uh, for next episode. Now on the how to be sad thing, like what I took away from that conversation, like the thing that I really latched onto was something you recently said about how sadness can be a monument to a relationship, right? And how you don't necessarily need to run away from that sadness. And if you try to run away from that sadness, you might even be doing a disservice to that relationship that you had. And I think about the loved ones that I have lost. Uh, I think about the friends that I have lost. And, uh, you know, the way I tend to operate with grief is like, it's it's not a loss, it's a celebration. Let's celebrate their life. And I, I still believe that. I still believe that we celebrate life when it disappears, but I also think like you don't just jump from loss of life to celebration. Like you need to enjoy that, not enjoy, but you need to embrace that grief as it pops up too. And we don't want to see grief and sadness as kind of a punishment for having a relationship. Like I'm feeling sadness now because I opened myself up to something and now it's gone. Yes. If we don't consider sadness to be a failure, we are opening ourselves up to even more people with the understanding that a lot of these relationships 
will end in sadness and not necessarily death, but just, you know, growing distance or maybe if it's a romantic relationship, you'll probably break up. Well, I mean, I think that's the other thing that How to Be Sad helped me with is this idea of little griefs. Like grief is not just uh, associated with death. There, you know, there's the loss of a job. There's a loss of a friendship. There's so many kinds of tiny losses that we encounter and we need to reckon with those tiny griefs. And I think maybe create rituals around them. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea a lot. So next week, our plan is to conclude our Marco and Alana conversation with volume nine. Uh, we do have a really incredible creator corner in progress, folks. Uh, Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone, the creator of Razzle, the creator of Tukey, is coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. What? It's wild. I'm pretending that like, I'm surprised because I want to recreate my shock when Brad told me this. Like, what? Jeff Smith's Bone is a top three comic book for me. It mm -hmm. is one of my all-time favorite things, period. And I cannot believe that he is coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. So we've got that in the works. Over on the Patreon, we're continuing to do our Sandman read-through issue by issue. We just did issue 27. 28 is going to drop real soon. We have other interviews with the creators of Orcs in Space. Yes. The brilliant Oni comic series that is maybe a young adult all-ages comic and maybe not. <laughs> and then we have a conversation with Rance Hosley about the Tori Amos graphic novel Little Earthquakes. That is fascinating. And both of those are going to drop this week on the Patreon. So be on the lookout for those as well. Exciting things happening here in the Love Nest. Our creator corner is about to have a guest in it, so I better start furiously vacuuming. <laughs> um, so where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Lisa. Uh, at Foggy Nelson on all <laughs> social medias. No, 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 I kid. At Mouthdork on all social medias. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore or X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? It's so funny that you ask because I just opened a new Twitter account. Oh, yeah? It is... Uh at Foggy Nelson can sit on my face <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. Oh. I'm going to have images, too, so I got to have that Instagram. Oh, no, no, I am being very vulgar. <laughs> um, you can send your words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Oh. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon, where, where you'll get more huh? content, including weekly bonus episodes. We actually listened back to the audio leading into our creator, uh, not our creator can, our words of affirmation. Oh, yeah. And you can totally hear that I am shimmer, shimmying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can shimmy. I can. We can all <laughs> hear your shimmy. Uh, but if you'd like to reach out and touch our shimmy electronically, <laughs> you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show 
Well, should, I'm really got. I'm got really got. No, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Let's end this. I've got a mush mouth. Um, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We're fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. No retakes. No retakes. As we approach our goals, the anticipation releases the neurotransmitter. My shimmy does bring all the boys to the yard, and I say, don't look, those are my tits. <laughs>